Hey folks, and I don't spell that with an X. Welcome back to the Naga Notes podcast. I am your now intermittent host, Jake Wiskirchen. For those of you who don't get that joke, we used to do this podcast weekly for a good solid four years, but in the last year it's been a little inconsistent, but we're still moving forward. And I am very pleased to be interviewing a colleague of mine from Oregon. Her name is Stephanie Wynn. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And possibly more importantly than that, she is launching her own, and actually by the time you hear this, she will have launched it, her own podcast, and it is called You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. And I'm really excited because she's doing some great work and she's bringing a message of really centrist, balanced, reason-based, logic-oriented, evidence-based, mental well care uh, to the to the world. Um, we met on Twitter. We covered that in the podcast. And her Twitter account is amazing. So if you're on Twitter, follow her on Twitter. But you can also go to her website and listen to her podcast. Uh, if you like stuff like this, if you're a big fan of our show, I definitely invite you to uh, listen to what what Stephanie has to say because I think she's an incredible therapist. We've we've communicated some in between, not just through this podcast and my appearance on her show. Hashtag humble brag. But um, we've we've corresponded and staffed cases and and consulted and so forth. And I, I think she's incredible. So if you're in the if you're in the Oregon uh, area in, in the state and uh, you need some help, I would highly recommend seeking her out because I think she's spectacular. So um, that's that's about all I got for the intro. I'm, I'm always pleased to be doing these. I always learn from them. I always love our guests, and I'm, I'm happy to be back on the uh, digital airwaves, as it were. So... Please, uh, you know, if you like this, uh, share it around, tell your friends. Uh, this is this is how we bring mental healing to people, by the way, is, is personal one-on-one invitations. If you know somebody who is interested in this field and is maybe suspicious or skeptical of it, please invite them to just listen. It, it costs nothing. It's very private. And you can just listen to me drone on or, <laughs> or interview people. And also, you know, don't don't forget to invite them to listen to the Guns and Mental Health podcast, which is another one that I co-host on behalf of Walk the Talk America, which is a nonprofit 501c3 organization here in the United States that tries to bridge the gap between firearms owners and mental health care. Um, the, the, the founder, Mike Sodini, and I interview lots of really fascinating people. The conversations are very powerful. And so if you happen to be a gun owner or if you're just gun curious, I highly recommend that you check out our podcast, Guns and Mental Health from Walk the Talk America. And then finally, if you know somebody or you yourself are interested in checking out how your own noggin may be ticking, please visit WTTA.org slash love. That's the Walk the Talk America website. And that particular slug, that slash love slug, goes to free and anonymous mental health screenings. So if you're interested in just, you know, checking in on yourself, seeing seeing that you're you're working okay and making sure your mental well being is where you need it, go to WTTA.org slash love, take a free and anonymous mental health screening. And uh, if the number that it spits out isn't what you like, maybe that's an indicator to seek more help. And more help doesn't necessarily mean professional psychotherapy. It could just be, you know, checking in with your friends or your family or your your trusted council of advisors that you may have in your life. And if you don't have a trusted council of advisors, I highly recommend you get one. Get some friends. Get some family. Talk to people you trust. 
and keep yourself stable. We don't need people diving into pill bottles or alcohol bottles or taking their own lives because they didn't get themselves taken care of. So WTTA.org slash love, free anonymous mental health screenings. Um, ZephyrWellness.org if you want to access some of our resources, including my emotional functioning videos. Obviously, this podcast and then uh, Stephanie's podcast, You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. Without further delay, here is Stephanie Wynn talking about her work and our collective opinion on the mental health field. Enjoy. Welcome back, lovely listening audience, to another episode of Noggin Notes. It's been a while. It's uh, you know I'm, I'm a little inconsistent these days, but that's okay. As long as we're continuing to put out content, I suppose that's all that matters. Uh, today we have with us Stephanie Wynn from Oregon. How are you, Stephanie? Good, Jake. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you too. We've we've corresponded quite a bit. We met on Twitter. Uh, it sounds like we're telling our dating story. <laughs> it's like we met on Twitter and then we met IRL. Um, but uh, we did. We connected on Twitter, and uh, I just uh, became a, a guest on your podcast, which is a really cool endeavor you're launching now. But before we get into that, I want you to uh, tell the, the audience who you are and all that good stuff that comes with a verbal bio. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just add on that note of, of how we met. I actually did meet my partner through podcasting. <laughs> so that was a cool story too. Things yes. like that do happen. Um, yeah, but so I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in Oregon. Um, I was originally from California. I went to California Institute of Integral Studies from 2010 to 2013. And I worked uh, first in California in intensive um, inpatient uh, mental health of, uh, 18 to 24 year olds with severe mental illness and psychosis. And then I moved to Oregon, worked the native American rehabilitation association with, um, usually foster care involved children and families, as well as some couples and adults. And, uh, then I moved on to a group practice where I got to work with a pretty broad, diverse population, people with, you know, anxiety, depression, PTSD, ADHD, all of that, and continue deepening my love of couples in the process. And I've been in private practice for going on two years now. Um, my business is real talk therapy PDX, and I call it real talk therapy because I like to keep it real. That's one of the things that I think drew me to you is seeing some of your posts online. Uh, it, it resonated with me. Like I think our cl- clinical community broadly has a tough time uh, addressing things directly. We tend to tiptoe around a lot of difficult subjects, which is ironically not what we're trained to do. We're, we're actually mm-hmm. supposed to be trained to go headfirst into these tough mm-hmm. subjects, but we don't. And, um, and hearing you is very, very refreshing. And, um, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm glad that now you're, you're a part of my life and we're able to, you know, ping professionally back and forth on a few things and staff some stuff and whatnot. So, um, I love yeah. talking about difficult topics. I feel Thank like you. years, years of practice, having really difficult conversations and not being able to shy away from them because I'm here in the room and there's someone who needs something from me and just having to ground myself and be present with those difficult conversations and sometimes give people difficult feedback. I feel like it's cultivated almost this superpower and this, this courage that shows up in my life that I'm really grateful for. So for any therapists who find themselves shying away from those kind of things, I mean, it, it will give personal benefit to you as an individual living your own autonomous life in addition to helping your clients to face those challenges head on. I agree. And and I can identify a little bit too, because 
in my own personal life when very tough things happen, the practice that I've gained in working through those things with other people makes my own dealing with them a lot more efficient. And I can do, do so from a place of peace and tranquility and, and centeredness that doesn't have me uh, off balance or chaotically running amok, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I agree. You know, the more we can do that, also, the more it builds intimacy with in and among, you know, couples and people groups and families and work mm -hmm. environments and so forth, too. So you actually get a better, deeper, richer relationship with human beings mm -hmm. when you're, you know, able to face the tough things head on. So yeah, thanks. Good, good call. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, but th then we get to talk about why you're on this podcast. And, you know, we're both therapists. It's a mental health podcast. And uh, I think people like hearing, at least I've gotten this over the years, they like hearing two people in a profession talk about their uh, work, you know, and I, and I can, I can test this because I listen to people on podcasts all the time. And it's always fascinating to me to hear two, you know, astrophysicists discussing space, for example. So I think right. when we discuss therapy, I like to do so with the audiences in mind, where we're talking about things that can be taken and be generally applicable. And people can take stuff, stuff away and put it into their own lives, right? And one of the, the things that we've, you and I have discussed is the, this idea of how effective is counseling these days uh, in the face of all the cultural forces that are maybe aiming to mm, not necessarily undermine it, but at least throw wrenches in the process. Um, so uh, why don't we start there? I think that's a big problem right now um, because I, I feel like we're being pulled in two directions where... On the one hand, people are more interested in mental health now than ever. There's been a lot of talk of destigmatizing. I feel like people have a broader vocabulary when it comes to mental health. And there's a lot of um, popular self help books, YouTube channels, podcasts. So, on the one hand, we're living in a time where the world of all things related to psychology and mental health is kind of flourishing and there's a lot of interest in it. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of misconceptions and other cultural trends that are making talk of mental health both um, popular for the wrong reasons and misleading. And then I think there are some trends that are both within and outside of the mental health community that influence people's ability to get better. In other words, the very things we need to do to improve our lives and our circumstances and our mental health, some of those run contrary to what the culture at large is encouraging us to do. Um, I think one major concept that you and I have talked about that's relevant to this is the concept of secondary gain. So of course, when someone is interested in mental health or seeking counseling or some other kind of self-help, it's because they have a problem, they're suffering uh, they're in distress. They want to change their condition somehow. And that's very real. The pain and inconvenience, the frustration with ourselves or our circumstances is real. And yet, oftentimes there are things holding that in place, things holding that suffering in place because you're getting something out of it. And on the, on its surface, that sounds like an absurd claim. Like how could anyone be getting something out of being miserable? Well, change is uncomfortable. And if you've built your life around a certain degree of discomfort, then that means you've maybe built your sense of identity around it. 
Maybe you've built your sense of uh, belonging or community, maybe some of your sense of meaning and purpose, um, as well as your habits, your, your mental as well as physical daily habits. So oftentimes the idea of doing something to improve your circumstances could feel like a threat to who you're connected with and the sense of love and support or belonging that you get from your community, family, friends, online acquaintances. Um, It could also challenge some core beliefs and sense of who you are and sense of how the world works. So one major theme there would be uh, what Jonathan Haidt would call the sort of the care versus harm foundation of morality um, or the justice and fairness foundation of morality. These are things we care about deeply, right? And if you have a certain sense of how the world is, how people work, how how you work within that, um, that's predicated upon certain narratives about what's fair, then sometimes there's a secondary gain in kind of holding on to resentment or in some ways kind of behaviorally protesting uh, getting better, because what would that mean? That would mean that uh, your well-being is in your own hands and not in the hands of something that you want to fight against, right? What what if there's a sense, you know, let's say if someone is anti-capitalist, right? Then there's kind of like, well, as long as I live within capitalism, I can't be happy because this is unfair. Well, that's kind of a tough position to be in because you're not overthrowing capitalism anytime soon. We don't need to get into a conversation about whether overthrowing capitalism is a good idea or not in order to acknowledge on a practical level that uh, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you're saying that your unhappiness or disapproval of something bigger than you that you can't control means that you have to protest that by remaining unhappy in those circumstances. Same thing with anything we might want that we can't get or anything we might think should happen that's not in our control that isn't happening. Sometimes there's a sense that if, you know, if I could actually pursue my own happiness, fulfillment, self-actualization, health, and harmony in life, even though that exists in the world and I don't approve of it, then then that's like me endorsing the things that I disapprove of, right? So there's there's a stubbornness in that. Like, no, I have to continue with my resentment and uh, my, you know, essentially my avoidance of taking control of what I can control because I'm upset about the things that I can't. So we know that really fundamental to mental health is taking control of what you can control and letting go of what you can't. And I, I think that right now we're seeing some cultural trends that fly in the face of that. It's it's interesting. Um, <laughs> as as you're talking, it's it's so cool to hear my thoughts coming out of somebody else's mouth, but in a much more articulate way than I think I've ever said. So this is why I love doing podcasts, by the way. I learn new ways to say the same things I want to say, but with different words so they can be heard better. Uh, hey, hashtag improving communication. So thank you for saying that. And I think, you know, I kicked this off by saying, what are some cultural trends that are, you know, trying to stifle, or maybe they're not trying to, but they are stifling advancements in mental health and healing. Um, But we can get pretty granular with that same description and get very specific into individual lives. We see this a lot with addiction, for example, where somebody gets so used to their pattern of behavior. And even though it's 
destructive or maladaptive, it's hard to leave it because they don't know how to identify or engage with the world through any other lens. So that that uh, mystery between what they know and what they don't know in and of itself is so deeply terrifying sometimes that it makes change very, very challenging. Uh, so what do we do to combat this, I guess, is the question. Like, how do we how do we exhort the, the listening audience or the public to evaluate that their behaviors and their beliefs are not their identities? How do we help them understand to hold loosely with some of these values and opinions uh, so that they can get what they want out of life? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is about the personal process of maturing and the shift from having an external to an internal locus of control. Um, I've been thinking a lot about resentment recently um, because resentment is a feeling that I personally have very little tolerance for. Um, I don't like feeling resentment and I have such a low amount of resentment in my life that when it starts to creep in, my alarm bells go off and I'm like, resentment, whoa, okay, stop. We got to deal with that. Um, I think a lot of people aren't very judicious about their entertainment of resentment. Now, feelings all have a reason. I don't shame or judge any particular feeling. All feelings are there to be explored, but resentment is one that points to something we need to deal with, right? So the other day I noticed myself feeling resentful towards someone I love. And again, that's something that I don't want creeping into any important relationships uh, because it feels poisonous, you know, and I felt that kind of poison of resentment. And I was like, whoa, okay, I need to look at what's going on. And so I was kind of refreshing my mindset by, by reading about resentment and, you know, got some useful ideas, some useful reminders about how, you know, resentment is like an anger that you hold on to because there's something that's not being expressed. There's an inadequate expression of emotion. And I think oftentimes we kind of, when we do indulge in resentment, it's this sense that I'm entitled to remain unhappy because someone else or something else is doing something I don't like. Right. And, um, I think part of the process of maturation that we're talking about and how do we help people get there is, is that dawning realization that you are hurting yourself more than anyone else. And, and you have to be connected to your own sensations of your own body, your own life to feel that that's not okay with me, that this feels icky and awful. And, you know, just like, if you're hungry, you need to eat. If you have a headache, you might want to, you know, take something for that. Um, our body has needs and we need to respond to them. I think a lot of people have problems with disembodiment. We can talk about yeah. that more, but resentment is one of those feelings too. It's like, this feels awful and I need to do something about this. And I can do something about this because no matter what judgments I have of situations beyond my control, I'm not okay feeling this way. And I'm the one who has ultimate control over what is the experience of living in my body, in my life. And I think when we have that realization, that sense that my internal state matters more than anything else to me, because this is my domain, this is where I have to live. Then from there, we can learn things, gain new tools about how to work with those emotions um, 
and we don't have to have all the tools right away, but we do have to fundamentally have the mindset that my well being is more important to me than any of those other things. And I've, I've often said to my clients, um, we all have to have a personal values hierarchy that governs our decision-making process. And if health money and relationships are not in your, if those three aren't somewhere in your top five, you need to reassess your priorities because you know, you're not overthrowing capitalism anytime soon. So you need money to live and you need it for most things that you're going to want. And relationships are fundamental and health is fundamental. If you don't have those three things, you're screwed. So if you're letting anything else take priority over those, you need to assess how you run your life. I have so many things going through my head right now um, that I want to talk about because I think this is a really rich area to explore. First of all, I love the personal values hierarchy. I think that creates a framework for interfacing with society, uh, but it also anchors a person. And it doesn't have to be – a lot of times we go to spiritual, religious because it's been around for a really long time depending on – it doesn't even matter what you pick. They've been around for a really long time. And there's always something to point to in scripture or doctrine, right? But it doesn't have to be. It can be totally agnostic. It can be very um, humanistic even where you point to the laws of nature or the laws of physics or even just ethical precepts of a profession. For example, the five ethical precepts of our profession are perfectly adequate to guide decision-making. So the personal values hierarchy really resonates with me. And I want to tuck that off to the side for just a second because I want to come back to it. But, uh, you know, something you said about like taking control of your own well-being, uh, it reminds me of something one of my mentors said uh, a long time ago about why he got into psychology. His name's Dr. Christian Conti. He's in Pennsylvania. I cite him all the time on all my podcasts. But he um, he said, I, I realized that you know, when I was growing up with my dad, his dad is a geologist. He taught, taught he taught earth science and stuff. He says, oh, well, I got into this because we, li- we have one planet to live on. Might as well know that we can about it. And Christian says, yeah, I got one mind, and I might as well know what I can about it. <laughs> yeah, so he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out his own psyche, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. it kind of hit, you know, it's a, it's a hat tip to that, right? Know yourself super well. Uh, so that you can self-govern. And here's where I, I, I think there's a cultural rub. I want to ask you one question, but then make an observation and get your reflection on both. One, the, the question is, do we think that mental health, and I'll put that in air quotes for listening, audience, mental health, however you, you describe that, has been so popularized in the wrong way that it's told, it's sent a meta message to the public consumer base that, go get your mental health treated, and it externalizes that, what you've mentioned before, the locus of control. It's where is the control? Is it internal with you or external, something else? And I, and I wonder if it, if we haven't inadvertently externalized it to say the therapist will solve your problems as opposed to you, which is how we were mm-hmm. trained. And yeah. then the, the observation is that I'm noticing the culture trending very rapidly, almost accelerating, toward this postmodernist belief where there is nothing real. Everything's a construct of a construct. We don't have things like ethics or values. And and some of the postmodern belief is wrapped into different social justice movements where it's like to, to suggest such a thing is oppressive and bigoted and, you know, racist or whatever. And and I think that flies in the face of our profession too, where, where we're trying to point to ethic, point to evidence-based treatments, point to research and say these things are real. And your values hierarchy 
helps make them real. It helps to provide an anchoring system for people who are adrift. So I think that's problematic. That's just my, my observation is that what we're trying to give to our patients and our clients is, is not the same thing that they're being told by broad society, which is it's not mm-hmm. your fault. It's not even your responsibility. It's not you can't even do anything about it. And oh, by the way, go get mm-hmm. mental health treat. Somebody somebody else will fix right. it for you, right? Right. Which brings up questions about the role of a therapist. Uh, one of my pet peeves is the use of the word venting. Uh, <laughs> when people think that that's what therapy is, is it's venting and that you get something out of just venting and or that, that therapy is just listening. Um, those are, those play roles. Uh, yeah, there's a time and place for venting, um, getting things off your chest and laying it all out. I mean, you have to say what's on your mind for a therapist to even start working with you. It's true. We're Um, not mind readers. Yeah. And, you know, but ultimately what's the role of venting in a mentally healthy life? Well, in a mentally healthy life, you occasionally vent to your spouse or best friend. Uh, about a particularly stressful day uh, as part of a, a bigger picture of living a full life, right? And what is the role of venting in therapy? Again, on a particularly stressful day, you need to get a lot, a lot off your chest, but that's really just a starting point. Right. You shouldn't feel like your therapist is going to shut down your venting, but venting is one way of conceptualizing self-expression. And there's a lot more to therapy than that, right? Part of it is hearing yourself speak so that you can gain insights from hearing yourself speak and hearing your own words reflected in different words. I mean, I've, I've, I can't tell you the number of times that I've basically told a client what I just heard them say. And then they said, wow, I've never thought of that before. (laughs) It's like, actually you just did. I slightly rephrased it, right? There's a lot of value in hearing yourself speak, but it's not just to get things off your chest mindlessly. It's, it's to have those dawning moments of realization. Uh, that then empower you with the ability to see from new perspectives about how you could look at things and what you could do about them or what it is that you might be needing. Um, So the dependency on therapy, on therapists, is the idea that a therapist is just this really nice person who just listens to you and validates everything you say. And really, we're here because we have an outside perspective. You need to feel like we're on your side. There's that unconditional positive regard. Like we have your best interest at heart, but that doesn't mean enabling your ego. That doesn't mean enabling the most kind of, and I mean ego in a particular sense. I know there's a lot of definitions of ego, but here I'm talking about sort of the the mental fixations that you use to reinforce a false sense of identity and that are really keeping you trapped. Right now, there is such a thing as healthy ego, healthy self-esteem, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about those mental fixations that you build a false sense of identity on and get kind of addicted to. Right, a therapist is here to challenge that, to help unearth the true self, and you can conceptualize that spiritually, you can conceptualize that psychologically, however you want to conceptualize it. But the person who is underneath all of this, the person who wants to self-actualize, that person needs help unearthing themselves from all of these dysfunctional patterns. So it is our job to help you take those things apart. Once we've gained your trust enough to see that, you know what, like we're not here to hurt you or to judge. We're here to help you excavate and recover those lost parts of yourself and and give those parts a bigger role in your life. So uh, another element of the 
dependency on therapists that I wanted to address is, um, again, that secondary gain piece of feeling like this is going to be your source of, of love and support and that you can't get it somewhere else. Now, while I'm still responding to the many notes that I just took on what Keep you just going. shared, Keep going. Uh, I know you and I both have a habit of getting on soapboxes. Um, the concept of mental health, right? When you talk about going and getting your mental health treated um, and that kind of external reliance. So let's say that we conceptualize mental health as a form of health, the health of your mind. That is kind of the definition. Agreed. Well, what constitutes health? I think we need to explore what makes for a healthy mind, right? So a healthy mind is a mind that is strong and resilient and flexible and vital, right? Just like a healthy body is strong, flexible, resilient, vital. It's, you know, the foundational pieces of self-care involve being nourished, rested, grounded. Um, and then also mental health involves joy, pleasure, meaning, fulfillment, all things that are values-based. And I think that when people talk about getting your mental health treated and putting it in the hands of an, uh, someone else, they're kind of forgetting to take all of that into account of what might it be like for me to be mentally healthy? And then how can my actions help move me in that direction? Therapy is going to play a role in that sometimes, but it's just one part. I, I look at therapy as a, as a catalyst. And those of you who remember, you know, high school chemistry, you'll remember like a catalyst is the thing that starts the reaction. It doesn't sustain the reaction. So my job is to try to help people get better, not to help them feel better. And I think there's a very mm. important distinction there. And I'm stealing the words of my clinical director, Jesse Lott, who shared that one day. I think that there's been this message that people come into therapy to feel better, which you can do with venting. You can do if you're affirmed in all your beliefs about the world. We just go, yeah, 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 I agree, I agree, I agree. Well, then we have to wonder what separates that action from that of a bartender or a hairstylist or a manicurist mm -hmm. or your best friend next door. Uh, we are supposed to be specially trained to address things and challenge and confront so that growth happens and growth is often uncomfortable because you have to go through a period of disequilibrium to grow. If you stay in equilibrium, no growth. Now, your equilibrium could be a pretty crummy existence. And if you come in with stating a problem saying, I have a problem with blah, 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 it tells me that you're probably seeking some solution to that. I can't help you solve that if I sit silently and simply reflect or let you keep venting. Venting, by the way, I was taught one time, uh, should not happen for a, an emotionally well-adjusted individual. Because if you're feeling the emotion in the moment that causes it, whether it's external moment or internal thoughts that cause the emotion, if you feel it, you acknowledge it, you embrace it, you own it as your own and let it go, then there's no venting to happen because nothing builds up to vent. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting too. Um, but we know that things stack up and we know that, that life doesn't always provide opportunities to process in the moment. So yeah, venting happens. But to your point about, you know, what, what is the role of the therapist? I think our role has to be clearly stated at the outset, which is we're going to help you achieve the, your stated goal. Now, along the way, we may point out some things that we see as well through our training, experience, and education that say, I know you came in with this one problem, but I'm also seeing some other things over here. And a lot of times those things are a little deeper too, um, and they're not symptoms, they're problems. 
And so we can state the problem, we can state goals, objectives to the goal, and then we get to interventions. One of those interventions may be venting, <laughs> and, but but really that's just the catalyst, right? Okay, cool. Now that you've vented, we've drained your limbic system, we can introduce new options for you to adjust your life. And I think with a clear expectation going in, the therapist can help guide the aggrieved into a better homeostasis that they enjoy so that they can seek those healthy behaviors that you listed. Um, I, yeah, more soapboxes, but I'm the host and I should let you talk. Now <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all good. You know, there, another couple of topics that just came to mind. One is that maybe we can get to later is digital addiction. Cause I think that Absolutely. plays a big role for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, another, another thing I wanted to mention is that is another thing I tell my clients too. whatever you want to believe you will be able to find evidence for it. I mean, think about the fact that there are such a thing as flat earthers, right? You know, if, if people are dead set on believing the world is flat, they will find evidence for it mm-hmm. and they will find community around that. Um, classically, an element of cognitive behavioral therapy is checking your mental filters. And that involves knowing yourself and having a degree of mindfulness, you know, knowing what your personal kind of default uh, ways of skewing things are. Uh, and that doesn't have to be judgmental. It doesn't have to be shame-based. It can just be self-knowledge, right? So um, one of my filters is I tend to be very sensitive to rejection and I tend to kind of overly perceive uh, anything that could be construed as evidence that I'm being rejected um, and kind of disqualify evidence that people like me, right? So if I know that that's a filter that I have, then I can be a little bit skeptical when there's a part of me that's going to that place, that's perceiving through that filter. And so knowing your filters doesn't have to mean that you have a flawless mind. It just means I know what to correct for. And this is where the list of cognitive distortions, the list of logical fallacies, these things can be really helpful just for kind of catching yourself like, oh, that's a really black and white or all or nothing thought that I just had. I just told myself that if this thing doesn't work out, that nothing will work out. Catastrophizing is another mental habit that we can train ourselves to recognize. And one little motto I came up with recently, I came up with this, excuse me, in session with someone and then kind of carried it forward. Like that's a useful motto to use is I do not catastrophize things that are a part of daily life. Right. So an example would be, uh, you know, so when people are at a really low level of functioning, and these could be perfectly intelligent, capable people, but just to have fallen into some really bad habits or went through a depressive phase, uh, then things like feeding yourself become really overwhelming. Now, this this is a problem that I have, too. Uh, I'm not very good at feeding myself. Fortunately, I have a partner who's good at handling that sort of thing. So sometimes do, there are lifestyle workarounds. Do you, right? mean, just, do you mean literal actual food that you put in your mouth or do you mean like feeding through relationships, spirituality, that kind of thing? Oh, no. I mean, I mean the, the practical day-to-day like necessity to eat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because yeah. eating is something where like you have to plan for it. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, Gotta figure out what you're, yeah. I mean, eating and, and, you know, I, I actually find it frustrating that the human body requires food three times a day. It's like, really, do I have to do that again? I, I swear I just did that. 
like, you know, uh, so I'm not, I'm not great about feeding myself. And, you know, I think if, if there are things, you know, you're not great at, then come up with some lifestyle workarounds or find a partner who balances you. But, you know, at the end of the day, we all have to eat. And we know that the healthier the eat, the healthier we eat, the better we feel. And so if you know that you're always going to have to eat and that you're always going to have to do the things around eating, like grocery shopping and cleaning up after yourself, then how about you don't allow yourself to indulge in catastrophizing the act of figuring out how to eat? You know, the, oh, I have to, I have to, mm, you know, it's that mental indulgence in making something out to be a bigger deal than it is. Uh, Same thing with any kind of daily or weekly chores or just life maintenance stuff. I've done this with watering my plants, watering my plants. I mean, I have plants for fun. I like them. Uh, And when I'm in a bad mental habit, it's, oh, I got to water my plant. It's like, you know what? You knew what you were signing up for when you got these plants, just freaking water them and don't make a big deal out of it. In fact, you know, remind yourself that you lo- you're grateful for their beauty and that you enjoy listening to an audiobook when you're watering them. So I think a good uh, motto is I do not catastrophize things that are a part of daily life. And that's just one way that we can kind of check our mental filters. But I brought that up as part of the bigger idea that whatever you want to believe you can. Right. So then we have to look at what's driving me wanting to believe a certain thing. And then how have I got into the habit of looking for evidence to confirm that and interpreting that evidence in a way that reinforces that belief? So, for example, if I want to believe that the world is a a dangerous, miserable place, I can absolutely believe that. I will find people who agree with me and I will find a lot of evidence to support it. If I want to believe that the world is a beautiful and peaceful place, I can find evidence for that too, right? And some people are going to say, no, 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 no. How can you say the world is peaceful when there's all this war and strife? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, the world is a big place. There are places where there's war and strife. There are also places where there are peace. And those places, you don't notice them. They don't stand out because it's just operating in the background. But if I look out my window right now, I can see that the sun is shining on some green leaves on a tree. And uh, you know what? right here and now here's a moment of peace and this is in the world. So I can say the world is a peaceful place. Now, what do I want to believe should be governed by my values hierarchy. My values hierarchy includes health, money, and relationships. I kind of equate relationships with happiness, but you could say more broadly happiness, relationships being a part of that. And uh, if I care about my health, if I care about my mental health, then I'm going to want to guide my choices of how to look at things based on what supports my mental health. And, you know, believing that I live in a safe and peaceful world is ultimately going to be better for my mental health. So that's the viewpoint I'm going to choose. And then I'm going to look for things that support that, including the media that I consume, the people I talk to and the habits, the mental habits I allow myself to indulge in. There's also people who are, it's a weird paradox in language, but they're fighting for peace, right? They're, they're working Mm -hmm. to end the wars. They're working to Mm -hmm. solve violence, right? So you can attend to that too and not make. your own thinking binary and like it's either all peace or it's all war it's like we don't we don't just slide into ignoranceville uh Mm -hmm. in chasing down our confirmation biases i am curious how many plants you have because if you're listening to an entire audiobook while you're watering your plants that makes me think your house is a jungle (laughs) 
not an entire audiobook. Okay. I used to have over a hundred. I I got I got Whoa. into it for a while. Yeah, I wasn't gauging my time and energy very well. You know, at some point I was like, I just spent twelve hours repotting. <laughs> this is escapism. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I he- I healed myself during a really rough patch. I healed myself through getting really into houseplants, and now I'm trying to only keep the ones I really love. That's that's cool, and that, and that's instructive too. Do you, do you uh, follow or have you read a lot of William Glasser's work? Because there's a lot mm-hmm. of undertones there. Well, Glasser is a big name in our field for people who don't know. He's uh, he invented this thing called choice theory and from that reality therapy. And there's a lot of books from the Glasser Institute. And one of his understudies who's still writing uh, named Robert Wubbledding, which is a great name in and of itself. It's really great for podcasting because you say Wubbledding and it just, I don't know, it sounds like it warbles through the Wubbledding. Wubbledding. But um, Glasser came up with this choice theory concept where Almost everything in our lives comes down to a matter of personal decision making. And he says almost because there's a couple things you can't control, including feeling and physiology. Um, but the idea is that with this this concept of choice, um, we can take control uh, and we can we can more or less predict our outcomes based on whatever our, our wants are uh, in light of our needs. And I won't go into this. I mean, I got a whole YouTube video on it. But he wrote a book called Positive Addiction. And Positive Addiction talks about how you can be consumed with an activity, a hobby, a desire, a, you know, whatever it is, profession even, and it can exhibit some of the same states and, and um, traits of addiction, but it's instead of drawing negatively from you, it's contributing positively to you. So, f- for example, take uh, jogging or yogging. It may be a silent J. Uh, if you go jogging or yogging every morning and you miss one morning, you're going to have this, a similar type of withdrawal effect where you go, oh, man, I really missed jogging. You know, like I, I missed my run this morning. Um, but the differences are that it doesn't consume you all day. It's not compulsory. You are in charge and it edifies. It doesn't detract, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you're going through a rough patch and you dive into something that's healthy like plants, you know, and, and repotting and potting and watering, um, that can serve not just, I, I mean, a tug-in-cheek said, that's escapism. Sometimes it can be if all you're doing is avoiding conf- confronting real reality, right? But a lot of times it can be very adaptive and highly functional, um, but, it, but it's the same type of addictive thing. So we could take this back to social media and digital addiction because you teed that up and I want to hear more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of those things that we would call a process addiction. And a lot of people will will hear this and go, well, it's not a real addiction because you're not ingesting chemicals, but it is. And process addictions are behavioral in nature, but they, they perform the same function in the brain as a lot of the substance addictions where you're getting a dopamine hit or adrenaline or uh, serotonin release. And so some of those process addictions can be things like video games, social media, pornography, and even softball. You know, if, you, if you're playing softball seven days a week um, and it's because you don't like your family, and you're using it as an excuse to avoid. Well, that that could become pretty addictive, and it can become maladaptive, not adaptive. So, talk a little bit about what you're seeing with regard to the digital addiction stuff, and how that's mm-hmm. coming into your mm-hmm. practice door, and what you're doing mm-hmm. to work with it. Well, first of all, let me just say, um, I think on a more positive note, when it comes to the positive addictions that you're talking about, I think everyone needs hobbies, and that Agreed. some of the more positive states would be like flow states, right? So there's definitely times that I've, you know, been focused on my hobbies when I had other things I quote unquote should be doing, but it's debatable whether that was really so maladaptive if that's part of what kind of sustains me. Oh yeah. Um, 
And I want to say a, a few words on hobbies, right? So I think everyone needs hobbies that fulfill a few purposes, right? A hobby that you can do by yourself because that's part of your self-care, a hobby that you share with other people, right? So that could be games or exercise. Um, you need an indoor hobby that you can do year round and an outdoor hobby that at least for one of the seasons, um, and you need hobbies that are physical on, to different levels that involve your senses and some that are mental, right? So I think a lot of people have gotten stuck where their hobbies are all mental, um, but we need things to get us moving and interacting with the world through our hands and our eyes and our senses. Um, so that's those are my beliefs on hobbies. I, I love and, that, by the way. I want to cut you off because I want to mm -hmm. uh, acknowledge how important I think that that was, and I want it to be a throwaway mention. Mm -hmm. Indoor, outdoor, physical mm -hmm. or stationary, we'll call that. Um, mm -hmm. And then, uh, or mental, I guess. And then uh, by yourself and with others. Mm -hmm. And I love that you touched on, like I have you know, the, the concept of like, I have lots of hobbies, but they only hit one or two of those right. categories, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think one of those, because we're talking about digital addiction, I love having my brain fed by smart people online. Yeah, I love same. reading posts and blogs and articles and watching videos and conversations, all that stuff. But I, that doesn't meet the physical need. It right. definitely meets the year round need, but it doesn't meet the seasonal need. You know, so I love that yeah. you broke that down. All those categories really, really make sense. So yeah. And, and we need balance to them, right? I'm the same. I'm, I can get very heady, very intellectual. Um, and there's a lot of fulfillment that comes from that. And also I have to break it up with, um, interaction with the physical world and with my body. Right. So having plants is a great hobby in that regard, because the fact that they need your care will get you out of your chair, tuning into the physical things around you and moving around to take care of them. Right. Um, same thing with having pets, for instance, pets have needs. Um, and of course, children definitely more than, more than any of those. Right. Um, so we need things to get us away from the screens and out of our heads and attending to the things around us. Um, but any kind of physical hobby, any kind of craft, woodworking, working with clay, making art, gardening, um, all of those, we, we need them to kind of change our brain states. Um, and on that note, I want to talk about um, brain states, right? So the default mode network, we tend to get stuck in. It's associated with higher rates of anxiety and depression. The more time you spend in the default mode network, uh, which is associated with rumination. And I think that when we are very sedentary and mental, it's easier to get stuck in that default mode network and in self fixation, which is another bad mental habit that's associated with the current misunderstandings of mental health. The current misunderstandings of mental health are about well, well, there's kind of this erroneous belief that you improve yourself through thinking about yourself. And that's only true some of the time, right? Actually, it's not really good for your mind to be thinking about yourself too much. You want to get out of your head and curious about the world around you because that's when your serotonin and dopamine are flowing mm -hmm. is when you're curious and engaged. And if you're thinking too much about yourself, then that's that social anxiety, rumination, depression. So it's important to get out of your head, interacting with the world. Um, whereas with digital addiction, you're either thinking about yourself or, or you're thinking about something and you're not tuned in 
to, to your body or your senses. I think a lot of people feel like there's something kind of relaxing about, um, you know, being on social media or on their screens, but it's, it's kind of this in-between state where you're not really active, but you're not really passive and it's not a true recharge. Sometimes people will feel overwhelmed with the responsibilities of their, their work or anything that's too mentally demanding. So there's, I'm going to take a break and scroll through Instagram or play this game on my phone or whatever. And it's only a part partial break because your brain never fully gets out of the kind of states that it has to go into to engage with that sort of thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I was, if you're not watching the video, I was doing finger guns at Stephanie. Cause I was like, yes, you you're nailing it. And I think I can certainly identify, especially with the last couple of years where we've been in various stages of, you know, work from home and all that. Um, it's still a screen, which is not great because uh, it's passive. Uh, and you you have to be mentally aware of what you're looking at, how much time you're going to give it, if you're going to reply, what the reply is going to say, who's going to think of it. So, yeah, it's not a break at all. Uh, there's a ton of mental energy that goes into social media, even if you're just passively scrolling and you're you're lurking, right? If you don't have an active account but you lurk for information or news blurbs or whatever, it's still stimulating your brain in a way that was not the intent when you jumped on. And even Instagram's gotten that way mm-hmm. now, where like people are not posting fun things they did over the weekend anymore. They're they're posting activist posts or you know informational mm-hmm. posts or news blurbs. Mm-hmm. So I don't. Yeah, man, that's a great point. And you're not processing what you're taking in. People are overwhelmed in part because they're not, their mental digestion isn't keeping up with their mental intake. So for me, that's part of why writing is helpful um, and podcasting and anything that gives me an opportunity to reflect back on what I've been taking in. That's part of, sorry, I just had an alarm going off. Um, yeah, for me, it's important to write and speak about the things I'm taking in so that it's not all just kind of floating in my right. unprocessed and stirring up half, you know, emotions that I'm half aware of. Yeah, well, and the emotions half aware of thing is not to be taken lightly either. When we talk about venting earlier, the the psychological term for that, at least from like a Jungian perspective, is called a catharsis. And we've probably all heard this, have a cathartic moment. Well, what is it? It's a release of emotional energy. And the stuck emotional energy is called a cathexis. So we don't want to be going through our lives going catharsis, cathexis, 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 where we're repressing, mm. exploding, repressing, repressing, exploding. What we want is mm. something called ebullition, which is a flow. It's a it's a it's an effervescent uh, state of mm-hmm. acknowledging emotion in the moment and then letting go of it to be prepared for the next moment. Now that's not to be confused with mindlessly just. Lo, you know, limping your way through life, uh, you know, being being a hippie, like not concerned about the future. Whatever happens, happens, man. No, it's it, we want to be mindfully reflecting on the past, enjoying our successes so that we can replicate them, you know, uh, avoiding our mistakes again, and then mindfully anticipating the future too. But we don't want to live in either because that's what creates depression and anxiety. So you want to be in the present moment. And what's required for that is ebullition. Uh, we don't want stuck energy and you're going to get stuck energy if you don't process the stimulus that environment has provided you throughout the day. Um, I don't know how many times, you know, people will come into the clinic, into the office, sit down and talk about how they have anger issues, right? It's like, well, what are you covering up with the anger? Usually it's a stacking that doesn't get processed. It doesn't get let go and it can go all the way back to childhood Mm -hmm. in some cases, Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, so that, I'm a big emotional functioning guy. You know that. A lot of the mm-hmm. listening audience knows that. And I think that's super important. But I, I, I love that you're, you're touching on the idea that we're purposely ingesting now more environmental stimuli through our screens, through our social media that we don't attend to fully, don't process fully. Um, and you don't have to journal. If you, if you suck at writing, don't write. If you don't have the equipment or don't have the desire, don't do a podcast. By the way, Stephanie has a great podcast. It's really, really exciting. I'm really excited for you. Um, but there's lots of ways to do that. And simply talking to other people is a great way to do that. You know, just acknowledging it, right? Talking to your mm-hmm. friends. Uh, texting is fine, too. You know, we can we can text about it. I got a lot to say, but again, mm-hmm. I, I, lo- I, love, mm-hmm. I love talking to other smart people. This is great. Like, you know, it's, it gets my juices flowing, and we get to put this stuff out there in the world. And, um, yeah, so anyway, you're, you're deep in thought. I see you keep taking notes, and I'm taking notes, too. I'm just looking at my notes, and I'm thinking, wow, we managed to touch on all these things in such a relatively short period of time. I want to own it. I don't want to let you go without talking about the affirmation stuff. Cause I think that in our profession mm-hmm. and I, I made a Twitter post a couple of days ago that alluded to this, it said something along the lines of the medical profession broadly, and not just mental health has to really be, be careful where we go with this a- affirming concept because it starts with affirm. And I don't know where I know the place where it originates affirming people who come in which is really just acknowledgement of where they are. It's meeting them where they are. But what we've done is we've taken the affirm the affirmation and it's no longer like, hey, I meet you where you are, I acknowledge you, I honor you, namaste. It's now it's agreement. It's agreement mm-hmm. with the diagnosis that the individual has made as they walk through the door. And we'd sort of been flirting with this for a while now, where parents will bring in their kid and say, He's got ADHD, treat him. We go, Well, actually, I'll be the judge of that. And we maybe later assess that it's diffuse boundaries and parenting and we need to work on shoring that up or something. And the kid doesn't actually have ADHD, but the parents can't hear it and they don't want to hear that. And so, you know, now we've got guidelines issued by professional associations saying thou shalt affirm and thou shalt not confront if it's offensive to the, to the patient. And I think that that's disastrous because not only does it send the message that patients can self-diagnose through TikTok or whatever or WebMD, but that it undermines the authority given through statute by license uh, to the to the professional. So, you know, take it to the medical profession and imagine something as absurd as somebody walking in with an obviously busted arm with a bone sticking out of the skin and bleeding everywhere and saying, Doc, I just need some some painkillers. And the doctor saying, you got a broken arm. We got to, we got to set that thing and stitch you up and, you know, stop the bleeding. And you go, nope, you're not affirming me. Like it sounds absurd, but put that into our practice. You and I have, have encountered this recently where somebody comes in and says, you know, I have X disorder. And we go, no, you don't. You got something else. They go, well, that's not affirming. And now we're, we're, we've got an opportunity that the public can actually file a licensing board complaint because we didn't affirm. It's like, well, how are we supposed to do our jobs then if, we, if we're not allowed to diagnose as we see fit and then you know, orchestrate a treatment plan to deal with that stated problem issue? So I think that's really problematic, and I want to know your take on it. Uh, you know, wh- wh- how, do we, how do we bring reason back to the conversation? Um, you, know, I, you know, as – As you were bringing this up, I was looking at my notes and thinking, oh, there's this other thing I wanted to make sure to talk about. But as you continued, I saw actually the connection between the two. So 
I wanted to address misconceptions about mental health, um, especially around motivation, for instance. Like there's a common misconception that I have to feel like doing something in order to do it. And this is, you can procrastinate for ages on a really minor task because of this. And I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. Yeah. Waiting for you for the motivation to magically arrive. Yeah. But, but that shows a lack of recognition of the differences and inter interconnectedness, but differences between thoughts, feelings, and actions and the self, right? So I can feel a certain way. And if I feel a certain way, that might limit the range of what's possible. So an example would be if, if I'm physiologically ill, then I should definitely limit my activities out of respect for my body's need to rest. That's not invalid, but I can feel a certain way and still get up and do something. In other words, I can feel sad, but still get up and put my laundry away. Right. And so I think a lot of people who get stuck in patterns of not taking action over their lives are kind of held back by this misunderstanding that how I feel has to determine how I think and how I act. And also that it has a, a big say about who I am. Right. And really part of our job as therapists is to help kind of parse all that out. And one of the hallmarks of good mental health is having you know, a kind of healthy mixture of interconnectedness and differentiation between thoughts, feelings, actions, and our sense of self. Um, so I think that there's actually something really similar at play when you talk about this misconception about the role of therapy being affirming, right? Because I think that that is predicated on a misunderstanding that what it is to care about someone, which it is our job to do, is to agree with them. Because if who you are is based in how you feel and how you feel is everything, how you feel is more true than what you, than, than anything else and should be the basis, then of course the therapist should just agree with and validate right. and affirm whatever the client says. Because if we don't, then that means we don't respect them. Yep. That means we don't respect who they are. Um. And so I think we have to kind of parse that out. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. And that's a new thought for me about the, the idea of um, feelings being immutable. That's not new, sorry, because I teach this stuff. It's the idea that how I feel is of utmost importance. I hadn't, I don't think I'd connected that. So I actually have, I have another video called um, saying I feel is ruining your ability to think. And what I mean by that is, mm -hmm. You can't change, much to Glasser's point, you can't change feeling or physiology. What you can do is control it. So I don't get a choice over whether or not I feel sad because my expectations didn't get met. I do then, through my cognitive zone, control how much and how long I want to feel sad. So if somebody has conflated belief with feeling, and so the, the example I frequently use is, I feel like the room's the wrong color. Well, room's the wrong color is neither feeling or physiology. It's a belief. It's an idea. It's an interpretation. It's an understanding. It's something cognitive. It's something comes from the frontal lobe that I can control. I can control my beliefs. I can control my thoughts. I can change my mind. But if I've said to myself, I feel like, and then what follows is not a feeling or a physical effect, what I've done is I've essentially neurologically handcuffed myself to being able to control it or change it when it's 100% in my control and to change. So to combat that, 
and I think this gets back to something we were talking about earlier about uh, the dichotomized thinking and a lot of the, the, the thinking errors that we do with cognitive behavioral therapy. A way to combat that is the same way we combat this, through humility and curiosity. And if we, have, if we can stay humble and curious and also grateful, I think then what we end up with is being in a position to receive new information, evaluate that new information, and then make a decision out of our, our logic instead of our limbic. But it requires a definitional degree of separation where we say thoughts, thoughts are defined as this, beliefs are defined as this, actions are defined as this. And I don't mean like the pure behaviorists where like everything is an action, <laughs> everything is a behavior. But like for common discussion purposes, we have to define those terms and we can't conflate them because if we conflate them, we're telling our brains that we can't change them. It's like, well, that's mm-hmm. it's my feeling. I feel like the room's mm-hmm. the wrong color. I can't change that. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you're right. I can't change your feeling, but that's not a feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, and none of this is to say that how you feel doesn't matter. Absolutely. Right? Because I, Absolutely. I can imagine people hearing this and thinking, what the heck kind of therapists are these? They're so uncaring about how <laughs> people feel. And it's not that at all. Um, it's, it's that we want to kind of get to the root of things and offer compassion where it's needed. We want to mm-hmm. explore that feeling, um, but we don't want to just in necessarily indulge and agree with the narrative that's around the feeling. Yeah. Right. And when you know what it is that you feel, then you can have compassion for yourself. You can accept that you feel that way. Um, but you don't have to agree with what you think or, right. and you don't have a, set path that you necessarily have to follow. So if I'm feeling rejected, right? I talked about how that's a bias that I have. If I'm feeling rejected, it's not to say that I should scold myself into saying, you know what, that's just not true. It's, oh, I'm feeling rejected, right? I can give myself some tenderness around that. And I can have the self-awareness to know, you know, that is a bias that I hold. Mm -hmm. And I'm still, you know, I still feel some of that pain from some of the earlier experiences right. that made me feel this way. And what can I offer myself right now that might help me love that part of myself? And actually assuming that I got it wrong is actually an act of self-care. Maybe I can, I, I can, I, it's not gaslighting myself. It's not de- denying re- my reality. Right. It's saying one of the things I can offer myself right now is I can look for evidence to the contrary. I can think about, you know, out of all the interactions I've had with this person, there's been so many positives. Maybe I'm jumping to, to, to conclusions here, right? Um, so we, we care about how people feel and we want to help with emotion regulation so that you can spend time in that feeling when you need to. Right. I think one one tool I, I want to help people with is how to give yourself the permission to feel. So, yeah. Uh, for example, I went through some really stressful events recently and I knew that I needed to just spend the weekend recovering from those events. And so it was like, how do I create the right environment for myself to recover? OK, I'm going to create a really a peaceful atmosphere at home. I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to go for a long walk and have a good talk with my partner. I'm going to do these things to create the right environment for me to be able to feel those feelings until they're, until I've moved on. Right. I don't have to attach myself to that feeling. And I think sometimes people become so insistent on uh, the need to kind of validate the whole narrative around that feeling 
as if there is this kind of permanence to the whole thing or as if it defines your identity, but you are not the feeling. You are the one who is having that feeling. And from there, uh, an evaluation on what it means, right? So I think rejected is a perfect one because when I teach the, the 10 emotions, rejected is not one of them. Rejected is an, an experience that can lead to a feeling and that feeling is usually sadness, maybe some shame. Um, so we, we validate that. We don't, val- we don't invalidate the rejection. We don't, we don't debate whether or not it was rejection. You can, you can have that word, that's fine. What we don't want to say is you can't do anything about it. And you perfectly illustrated that you can do something about it if you're willing to, if the individual experiencing the rejection is willing to say, this is not me. It's not, it's not a judgment about me. It's just a thing that happened that caused a thing in my brain to say, oh, I'm sad. And so you go, all right, so I self-validate. I go, this is legitimate. The rejection is legitimate. Um, now, is it a negative judgment upon me? Because I was rejected. It's like, well, you didn't get the job. Was I rejected? I don't know. We can debate that, I suppose. Um, Or they say, yeah, you know, we did reject you because that's what we do. We reject some people. Now, what's it? What is it with you hovering on that word that makes it so evil in your mind? And I'm not saying you do this, but some people do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and then you don't identify as a rejected person. (laughs) Like, that's all I am. It's all I'll ever be is I'm just always rejected. Now we've got it bigger issues because the identity of rejected person is tied to mm-hmm. the value judgment about the action of re- being rejected, which is then tied to the emotion that they've mm-hmm. said, I can't do anything about it. It's like, well, yeah, of course you can mm-hmm. do lots of things with it, and including get up off your butt and get out of your bedroom and stop you know, keeping the shades closed. Um, so we have lots and lots of options. And I love, I love, love, love this work because there's so much – variety and capacity for a human being to grow and evolve through whatever self-limiting labels that they've they've laid down our job is then to help illuminate those and help them see the possibilities and that can be very exciting it doesn't have to be scary uh it can be scary just because you're changing obviously but but we can say oh look at all the opportunity here uh Mm -hmm. if you don't if you no longer see yourself as a rejected person um or fill in Mm -hmm. the blank with your favorite um you know denigrating speech, then you've got opportunity to be all these other things. Mm-hmm. And I, I frequently say that I, I can be lots of things too, and labels should mm-hmm. be avoided, you know, if possible. Mm-hmm. And that, that set of bad mental habits that you just described really prevents us from learning from the feeling, right? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, as you're saying, rejection is a normal part of life that we all have to accept, especially in situations like looking for a job, or dating, right? If, if you're looking for a job or looking for a partner, the healthiest attitude is to go into it knowing that you will experience rejection, prepared to face that, prepared to uh, take it as redirection and work with it, right? Um, and when it comes to rejection, there's, there's a mix of what we need, right? So sometimes there's we need an attitude of, yep, I'm going to face rejection. And that's just what happens when someone looks for what I'm looking for. Another is I am feeling some old feelings that I've felt before around this rejection. And I need to give myself tenderness and compassion and use my tools. And then there's the other component of if I'm repeatedly encountering similar social problems, what part of that is mine? Am I doing things to 
contribute to my own rejection because right. some people get rejected over and over for a reason. And it's really hard to do that without shame. And I think a lot of people aren't prepared to face their shame. So they go to blame, right? It's that um, I'm rejected because the world is unjust. And that's where I think the affirmation thing comes in because a lot of people who are seeking to be affirmed in a certain narrative about themselves, one of the pieces of secondary gain that they're getting from that narrative is that this is why I've been rejected. It's because other people, it's because the me. world is stacked against this category that I belong to or this narrative I have about myself. And if I can tell myself and if I can be affirmed in the idea that this is me, then now I have a story that all the rejection I faced is because people have a bias against people like me. And I don't have to look at whether I am approaching people in a way that people want to be approached, whether I'm behaving with, you know, in a way that is going to make people feel comfortable around me and want to see me yep. again. Yeah. You, you, you had me on your podcast to discuss guns and mental health and the gun culture, uh, people don't like to hear this if you're not a part of the gun culture, but firearms owners do have the same experiences as lots of other mar quote-unquote marginalized um, populations. And you don't think of gun owners as marginalized, but they definitely carry a lot of stigma. And the, 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 the blanket mentality is, you're stigmatizing me because of this thing. Well, the same response can be true. Well, what are you going to do about it? I'm not asking you to, to, to sell all your guns and become somebody you're not. What I'm asking you to do is consider how you're interfacing with people. If you go into your, you know, into every conversation leading with, you know, pride for my cold dead hands, well, you're going to get a response from the, the people that probably doesn't beget great interaction. Um, and the same with any other group that claims that, you know, they're, they're, the victimhood is uh, universal, right? It's not universal. There's lots of people who will be glad to talk to you about whatever. But the idea is that this is not an immutable characterological trait. And if it is, then we definitely need to affirm that and say, yeah, your immutable characterological trait is not, A, uh, judgmental. Like, it sh we shouldn't be judging that because there's nothing you can do about it. B, um, we need to rec help you recognize that you can be more than just that because I think it's very limiting when we say, I am only this and this is how I identify and there is nothing else. Uh, you can be gun owner, you could be baseball coach, you could be therapist, you could be, you know, pastor at your church. Like all things can be true simultaneously. Um, so when we move forward with therapy, I think that the affirmation part is to say yes and, not um, yes but. So we want to say yes and, what do you want to do about it? Yes and, how do we get you out of this pain cycle? Yes and, what's your role in participating? And I think one of the things that interferes, we talk about cultural forces, is this thing about uh, victim shaming and it's like well shame is a neurologically necessary emotion that we have to have in order to engage in our environments because it tells us that we fail to meet other people's expectations and if we try to pretend that we're not allowed to use shame in an appropriate forward moving fashion and we take it completely off the table then no one has accountability and then they can go causing harm and perpetrating it across many environments and we don't get to call them to account for that. You're shaming the victim. It's like, I'm just holding you accountable for your part in this interaction. And I think that's very bad, too, and it's detrimental to our profession and being able to, to do what we do. Fortunately, rapport building helps overcome a lot of that. And, of course, education and training, too. If I 
if I psychoeducate you on what the purpose is of shame, you can go, oh, okay, I recognize what this feeling is now. It's telling me I need to make an adjustment, right? Instead of uh, just slinging more arrows at people. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those emotions that, again, we, we have to be able to learn from it by having a, a nuanced perspective mm-hmm. because sometimes that shame is telling us something about having done harm or embarrassed Absolutely. ourselves or and sometimes it's excessive or inappropriate and self-knowledge is going to help with that right it's going to help to know you know what i i go to shame really easily because my father this or my mother that yep. and uh so this is you know probably my, my, the shame that I'm feeling right now is probably excessive and I, I can run through my actions in this situation. And actually, I really don't think I've done anything wrong. Or if I have, it's like minor and forgivable. And there might be other times that there's there's a reason that I felt shame. And I think right now our culture is so skewed against shame that that all shame is bad. I mean, it, we're shaming shame. Yep. Uh, and and that leads to this dynamic where where nothing is shameful, but there are things that I think in order to create a healthy society and a healthy mind should be shameful because that shame keeps things in check. And I wanted to actually connect what you were just saying to another trend I'm concerned about, which is the trend of making demands. Uh, so yes. uh, one, one that I see a lot of is whatever marginalized category someone identifies with, uh, especially disabilities, um, mental disabilities. What, well, let me put it this way. A lot of people are clinging to diagnoses that they've either gotten from a professional or given themselves as these lifelong conditions that they can't do anything about. I.e. their identity. Yeah. And then there's an entitlement because I have PTSD, ADHD, whatever. Um, I demand that you, everyone around me and the world uh, should treat me in this way that you should yep. understand this, that, and the other about me. So when I do this, don't take offense, look at it this way instead. And, and it feels really, uh, like just the sheer mathematics of it is off to me because you're, I mean, there's, there's the assumption that I, the person with the condition that needs to be accommodated, I'm talking to a world full of people who don't, don't have conditions. Don't even condition. know you exist. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Well, and, and the assumption is that you who I am talking to, you have no conditions. Well, yeah, because yeah, according yeah. to my own logic, according to my own logic, if you have a condition like me, then I should be accommodating you. Right. So right. That can't work. So the assumption has to be that everyone I'm talking to is just here to be a better person for people like me. Nobody else has problems. I have problems. And so what happens when you put two or more such individuals together, right? Who both say that my so-called disability, however kind of real or exaggerated that might be, it entitles me to everyone around me going out of their way to understand what I want them to understand about this and how it means they should treat me. And, but if I'm saying that part of my condition is that I can't handle criticism or that I react a lot to certain triggers. And now you're telling me that because of your condition, uh, you're, you're going to react to the triggers that I'm sending your way. Well, that just, it combusts, right? It it can't go anywhere under its own weight. It's a logical fallacy. And that's, 
yeah, it's it's just a very shallow and immature worldview. And then combine that with creating a social dynamic, which I, I think we're entrenched in collectively right now, where um, there's this oppression hierarchy. And if you're perceived to belong to all the so-called privileged categories and none of the oppressed categories, then um, you should expect to be treated very harshly. You should expect that people are going to be criticizing you based on your demographics. They're going to be schooling you about what you need to do better. And they're not going to have any tolerance for any of your personal flaws. And if there is an option to opt in to some kind of oppressed category, who would not take that option? right? Of course, you're going to want a shield because you're human. You have your own feelings. You have your own limits to how much you can tolerate shame and rejection too. And so if there's the option to call yourself something like queer, trans, uh, some kind of, um, you know, having some kind of disability, anything that gives you some kind of shelter. So you can say, Hey, don't criticize me. Don't, you. you know, yeah. Right. So, of course, we're incentivizing people to identify into these categories because the alternative is being blamed for things nobody wants to be blamed for, um, being interpreted in a very negative light. Um, yeah, we're, we're incentivizing identification with mental illness. And it's like, how does it not occur to the people who are perpetuating this that there's that you're going to kind of shape social dynamics to move in a certain direction. And then if everyone's identifying into these oppressed categories as a shield from the vitriol that they'll experience if they don't, then who's left to give you the things that you think you're entitled to? Who's, who's the grounded, stable, resourced, compassionate person who isn't worn down by being criticized for having their privilege Who's going to listen and and give you all the things that you're demanding you should receive? Well, this is the problem with othering everyone. Eventually, yeah. you run out of people to other. And then it yeah. becomes what you know, some people have called the victim Olympics. You know, it's who's yeah. going who's gonna to land at the top of the heap of the, the most oppressed or whatever. And you look around and who's left? You got no choice but to go back to the person that you had previously slapped a label on and shipped off. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, now what do you do? And and the sad thing is that we're that people who are grounded, stable, and resourced are people who have immense potential to contribute to society and to teach others things that could benefit them. Right. Yep. So for example, um people tend to think I'm well off uh because I seem educated and I have a you know middle class career. Um, and they're not exactly wrong, but I, I don't think anyone I know in any kind of public sense has any idea where I come from or what I've been through. I just don't advertise that because I don't want to play into social dynamics that, you know, I don't want to be like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a victim. You know, I just don't want to do that. But, you know, having gotten to a place where I am stable and resourced and mentally healthy, allows me to be of service to others. And, you know, there's that, there's that saying that comes from research, although I'm, I'm fo- foggy on the details that, 
you are, you become like the people you're closest to, right. In terms of your health and wealth and lifestyle, it's like, why wouldn't you want to surround yourself with and learn from people who have solved their problems, right? There's, there's this narrative though, that anyone who appears to be stable, healthy, wealthy, um, that they were given that, uh, unfairly, they don't deserve it. Um, and they don't have to do anything to maintain it. And they're selfish and really like most people who are in those positions have done something to earn or maintain it. And they've learned some good habits that the rest of us could benefit from. Um, so just to give like a little taste of where I come from and my perspective on this is that um, I've actually been homeless among other things. And, um, and that's just one little thing I've been through and supposing that I had a really nice house, right. Which I could easily, I mean, I, I just moved out of a house in a bad neighborhood and now I'm renting a house in a good neighborhood, but you know, someone could perceive whatever level of wealth they perceive in me. And it's not my job to give public commentary on the, my precise details, but, um, and, and feel like it's not fair for me to have that. And then I might say, well, would you want someone who's homeless to improve their circumstances? Would you want uh, someone to be able to arrive in my position who you currently view as a victim of these socioeconomic forces? And they would say, well, yes, I want justice. And then if I were to say, well, I was actually homeless once, I, I wonder what would happen next, right? I'm, I'm guessing that either their head would explode. Well, I didn't mean you. Or, right, right. Or- you know, and and what's missing is, well, I think what would happen is either their head would explode, or they would have to, they would find a way to double down to prevent themselves from dealing with the stress of the cognitive dissonance, right? And what I think is missing is the the curiosity about the resilience of oh, how did wow, it happen? How yeah, maybe there's something. Uh, that others who are in bad situations can learn from you about how to succeed, mm -hmm. but it's, it's not going to come through blaming the world. And man, I mean, there's a part of me that uh, simultaneously wishes that, that uh, the victim mentality were more popular when I was a victim, because then I could have <laughs> you know gotten more attention from it. And is also like thanking the heavens that it wasn't the case, because I think that if the world had been too indulgent of uh, my own victimization, I might not have pulled myself out of it. It's a good point. It's a really good point. You know, and it, uh, there's currency in victimization. I think there's been enough mm -hmm. written about that. We don't need to address it here. But I want to talk a little bit more about the shame. This is something new that I'm teaching now and part of my emotional functioning seminars is I've realized that our tribe is too big. And so when we're, hmm. when we're online, it looks like everybody is the tribe and you can't, mm. you can't be in a tribe with everybody. We're not, mm -hmm. we're not evolved to that extent. And mm -hmm. even if we were, it's mathematically impossible, but the shame bells still ring when we fail to meet someone's expectations. So here's the interesting thing. People can create whatever expectations they want in retrospect and then blame you for not meeting them, which 
you can't stop your brain from registering that. All you can do is notice it and go, is this rational or irrational? And the anonymous Twitter account that wants to cast aspersions and say that your your privilege is oppressing them or whatever is a shame function. It's designed to get us out of guilt to correct the aggrieved the the egregious behavior that that uh, violated the person. Right. The problem is we can't because we don't know who they are. They're anonymous. There's no mechanism by which we can do it. And so we're left with the shame feeling that we need to meet that person's expectations. It turned out they weren't even in our tribe to begin with. Mm-hmm. So my my exhortation, my invitation, I guess, is to for people to recognize that they need to shrink their tribes. And mm-hmm. we're, 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 there's a great gal. Uh, I don't know if she's a great gal. I've never met her. But she's got a great, <laughs> great TED Talk. Her name is Catherine Booskill, B-O-U-S-K-I-L-L. She's a evolutionary um, psychologist, or uh, sorry, anthropologist, uh, social anthropologist. And she has a good TED talk on how w- the pace of life is not um, is not designed for how we've evolved. It's it, The pace of life has gone way past where we're supposed to be, and it's outstripped our neurological ability to handle things like information flow. And my, my take in, in integrating that is that if we're, if shame and guilt are designed to tell us to correct mistakes so that we don't get kicked out of the tribe because evolutionarily we're not designed to live on our own we're designed to live in community and the tribe is whatever we see online and the tribe is full of a bunch of people who have loudly proclaimed that their expectations are not met we're feeling the shame based on their disappointment with the world Mm -hmm. and then we're we're not able to fix it so we're Mm -hmm. all experiencing this inability to meet expectations Mm-hmm. And no wonder we have a mental illness problem, right? If we're mm-hmm. if we're glued to our screens and we're looking at thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people who are all screaming how they're not doing well and it's somehow intimated that it's my fault, mm. of course I'm going to want to do things like, um, you know, raise taxes and throw more resources and create more programs. And it's like, yeah, but you're missing the target. The target isn't even a target because it's falsely originated in the first place. So I, I, I just wanted to say that because I think we're forgetting that shame has a purpose and mm-hmm. it's a very narrow purpose with very limited interactions with people who matter to us uh, who are in our tribe. Not everybody's in your tribe. Mm-hmm. And this is where that values hierarchy right. comes in again. And I feel like my work as a therapist has really helped me to grow up because I I've had to work with a really diverse community, right? I've, I've worked with so many different people that I would not have crossed paths with if it weren't for them coming mm-hmm. to see me, right? And it's helped me recognize by, by seeing so deeply into human nature in people from different walks of life who I actually have things in common with. Yeah. Like out of my clients, right, it's, the values that are guiding how they're handling their circumstances similar to me than demographics or their cultural interests or things like that. And so I, uh, I, I use this insight to help my clients develop better filters for dealing with criticism. So, um, you know, evaluating is the criticism that I'm being met with uh, based in is it coming from someone who wants the same things I do, hmm. has the same values, lives according to those values, mm-hmm. and is judging me according to those values? 
And are they delivering this feedback in a way that, you know, is as kindly as I would hope that I would yes. deliver feedback to someone, right? Because if, if the feedback is based on, you know, if it's a, a kind digestible reflection of something where I'm not living up to the standards that I share in common with this person, then that's something to take in. Right. But if, if the criticism that I'm being delivered is being delivered in such a heartless or aggressive way that I myself would never talk to anybody that way, or that I would only talk to somebody that way if they had done something really egregious and hmm, did I do anything that egregious? No. Um, or if they're shaming me based on the fact that I haven't lived up to expectations that are based on values that I actually don't hold in common with them, right. then, then it doesn't apply, right? That's not my tribe, as you would say. That's, again, this is why I have people on this show who are smarter than I am. You perfectly put into words what I wish I could have done uh, myself. So thank you for that. <laughs> mm. I think that's a really good place to stop because we've gone on for like an hour and a half now. And um, Great. I want to value your time and honor it. You've got a two o'clock anyway, but um, I'm going to give you a chance to plug yourself and tell people where they can reach you and uh, talk about yeah. your upcoming endeavor. Thanks. Well, I also need to learn how to do shorter podcast episodes because I have not kept any of them under an hour yet. <laughs> um, so my podcast is called You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. And uh, right now we're recording this on May 9th. It launches May 15th. So by the time this podcast is live, You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast will be live. Um, I'm excited that you, Jake, are one of my first five guests along mm -hmm. with... Um, Sarah Payton, the author of Your Resonant Self. We talked about self-compassion. Um, Colin Wright, he's an evolutionary biologist. We talked about what he learned from studying ants and spiders' social behavior that applies to dealing with human social dynamics, some of the ones we were talking about today. Um, I interviewed Jennifer. She's a parent of a youth who had rapid onset gender dysphoria who has since desisted. And uh, Roberta Shaler, who's an expert on dealing with people she calls hijackals or relentlessly difficult people who hijack relationships and utilize them for their own uh, personal gain. Um, so those are the first five episodes that are dropping May 15th. And we have a lot of exciting ones after that. Um, so for example, one of my more fun episodes is with Cindy Narr from Netflix's Baking Impossible. She did some incredible creations as a baker in combination with an engineer. And I saw that and I thought, I want to oh, know wow. how someone gets to be that creative and that resilient. So that was a fun interview. And um, I have one with Jonas Rosen on psychedelics. Uh, and there's just so many exciting topics to cover. Um, so you can find me on all podcast platforms as you must be some kind of therapist. Um, my website is sometherapist.com and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at some therapist. I'm not sure why I'm in that mix or what I did to be included, but I'm pretty honored. That's uh, that's that's something. Those are some pretty pretty cool guests. So, well, I wanted a mix of well, mix of men and women, and a mix of episodes that are more kind of challenging and heady with those that are more kind of about compassion, a little softer. And so, I loved that our episode was just so direct and and straightforward. Really, kind of tackling. Um, some mental health misconceptions. And that's why I included you in the first five. Plus, you're great to talk to. Thanks. 
I appreciate that. I accept that. That's something. So there's a little peek behind my own curtain. I'm, I'm working on accepting compliments. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out that's all you have to do is just say thank you. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Well, <laughs> Stephanie Wynn, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your presence and your insights. And I always learned something. This is why I do this thing. It's, yes, it's a benefit to you guys, but selfishly, I get to meet new people and learn really cool stuff. So uh, thanks to everybody who listens. Uh, give us a rating and review if you like it. Please rate high. If you don't, yeah, whatever. <laughs> don't trash talk us. Uh, just delete it from your episode queue. And on behalf of the Noggin Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care.